Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as food columnist for at SMH, at The Age, at Sunday Life Mag, and at Guardian. Host of Hashtag Destination Flavor, at UNICEF Australia Ambassador, writes books too, Hashtag Asian Cookery School. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's addition to the Humans of Twitter list, Adam Lior. Hi, Steve. How are you? Oh, Adam, I am doing very well, and thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me. Can you tell me in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, certainly not with as many hashtags and ats in front of it. I usually just <laughs> use my name. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you have so many fingers in so many pies. So many people know you from so many different things. Yeah, but I, I'd, I'd never think what you do is important. I think um, it's it's this thing that we, I guess, I used to be a lawyer and, and yes. as an expat in Japan, we used to have a bit of a game going how long you could go without the person that you've just met trying to work what they do for a living into their <laughs> into the discussion. And so, we, I mean, I've been very used to tr- actively trying to avoid telling people what I do for a living for a very long time because, you know, there's only so many times you can talk to someone and then they work, they're, they're trying to trying to tell you that they're an investment banker or they're trying to tell you that they're, they're something <laughs> desperately and you try your hardest not to let them tell you that. It's a, bit, it's a, it's a good game to play whenever you, you're at a party that you're not really sure you want to be at. Well, in, in part, you're also doing that a little bit now, and I appreciate it was some time ago, but as a as a chef, you came to prominence on a national stage being the first male winner of MasterChef. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was only there's only one before me, so 50-50 chance, I guess. But um, Damn you, Goodwin. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I loved MasterChef. It was, a great, it was a great experience. We, uh, well, I offer this quite personally. We are benefiting from what has come... Since then, however, in that your Destination Flavor series that's on TV is a stunning look at a whole bunch of different food cultures that maybe we aren't as aware of in Australia. Yeah, Destination Flavor is a – it's a food show, of course. You know, we do cooking in it, we do explore food. But I always say to producers and to the, all the people that work on the show is pretend that it's not. You know, pretend that it's not a food show and let's yeah. do a – documentary on the culture of this country but instead of telling the story through other means we just tell that story through food so it's not just looking for tasty things that I can put in my mouth and go wow yum that's delicious it's about trying to explain if you've never been to this country before if you've never experienced this part of the world before what are the things that you'd want to do and what what are the things that you should know more more or less about it and so mm-hmm. You know, in, in our current series on Scandinavia, we go and we visit people who have no connection to food whatsoever, and you know, we we go to we go to prisons. You know, <laughs> it's um, it, it, there's not many food shows that go into prisons and cook with inmates, and so mm. uh, to get, I think, a good. I mean, food tells so many stories very, very well. It tells stories of history, it tells stories of people, geography. It's really the only thing that puts all of those things together in a tangible form that you can actually experience by eating and Mm -hmm. uh, of course through the medium of television you can't actually eat it but you can still tell the story to that point 
just before it, it goes into somebody's mouth. Like you can tell the whole story of a dish and, and where it's come from around the world and who's made it and, and why this is uh, such an important dish for this culture right up to the point before it goes into your mouth. And then, unfortunately, I'm the only one that gets to eat it. You guys get to watch me do that. <laughs> what does your food say about you? I don't know. It's pretty eclectic, I think. I, um, uh, I have a pretty varied background. And um, the, the one thing that I do like about my food is that it changes a lot. You know, I, I cook yeah. completely differently now in my 30s as I did in my 20s and completely differently again to my teens and uh, completely differently again before that. And I think that's really important. Um, and it's not to say I cook much better. I'd like to think I do, but uh, I, I do cook very differently now to how I used to. What's changed? Um, well, right at the moment, I think I, I cook a lot more simply than I ever have before. And, and frankly, it tastes a lot better. Um <laughs> When I had a, a proper job, I had a day job, I think m- most of my cooking was either, uh, was probably uh, more a hobby. I think it's, um, when, when it's a, a hobby, I guess, you tend to want to push the boundaries of it. And that's very useful at certain times of your life. It's not so useful if you're only used to cooking fancy dinner parties and all of a sudden you've got two kids to look after and, and you you know they're not quite as impressed with your culinary skills as, as you may wish they were. But these days, you know, I, I, I love the simplicity of food, the way that I can cook something very delicious for uh, an ever-increasing number of people that seem to be in my family at uh, in a relatively short period of time and deliver good quality, healthy food without having to stress about it. Adam, I, I appreciate that in becoming the culinary master that you are now, <laughs> there will be some failures in your wake. Are there any that you would admit to? All the time. You know, if, if you're not afraid of cooking something terrible, you're never going to cook anything nice, frankly. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. You, you know, uh, what, was, what was most recent? Um, oh, this was, this was crushing. And how long ago was it? So two... Two months ago, I was at my, my dad's place and cooking in a new oven with new equipment and we bought these huge uh, tomahawk steaks and I was trying out this new reverse sear method with them. And, uh, uh, I mean, a, a bad carpenter blames his tools, but I'm going to blame the tools in this case. I, I whacked them into the oven for what in my oven would be an appropriate amount of time at an appropriate temperature and then grilled them on the barbecue. They looked fantastic. They looked perfect. And, you know, I didn't have a thermometer, which I would normally use to cook steaks like this. And they were uh, very well done. And I hate well done steaks. So this was, mm-hmm. it was a, that was a true disaster. Eight, eighty, ninety dollars $90 worth of uh, big old tomahawk steaks that uh, were, in my opinion, fit for dog food. That's, oh, look, I feel that big time because <laughs> I am a massive fan of the tomahawk. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I have had a couple cooked very poorly but when they're cooked right they're amazing yeah and and steak is one of the things that i kind of pride myself on cooking pretty well because it is so simple um but you know well at times you're going to have a mistake in the kitchen and you know it was it was crushing at the time but not from a i feel so embarrassed kind of thing it was crushing because i really wanted to eat a good steak and it wasn't Mm, steak 
Adam, how do you describe your experience of family? Uh, many and varied. I've come from a very, very big family. Um, and at times we were a small family. And then with, with uh, the blended of families that you get these days, and my mum remarried and my dad has a new partner. And uh, there are stepbrothers and sisters all over the shop and half-brothers and adopted sisters. <laughs> and um, we live all over the world. Uh, so... It's nice. I was in Rome last week and I dropped in and saw my brother over there and I'm off to the US shortly to see my other brother. My little sister's in uh, Brazil. My other little sister lives in China. Uh, I'm here. I'm the only one in Sydney, sadly. Um, I've got still family in Adelaide. So it's nice having a big family all over the place. But of course, now I've got kids of my own and a a wife of my own and we enjoy uh, our, our little life that we've carved out for ourselves in Sydney here. It's such an interesting change, isn't it, to to have the acknowledgement that this is my family and I still love them. And, and uh, I think people are finding that connecting with that, that broader family uh, is, is a really important thing. But to ha- to establish oneself with your partner and to have kids in that mix uh, can be, for me, it was a real mind bend just to sort of acknowledge I have to be really responsible in things now and I can't just sort of, hey, can we come over and... Can you feed us? You know when it starts? It starts when you host your first Christmas. Yes. And, uh, that, that's been me now for the last three years, I think. We've had um, the, the duties of hosting anything up to about 60 people for, for Christmas lunch. And that's that power shift when it goes from, you know, your dad's house or your mum's house or your dad's and your mum's house. And when it shifts to your generation, that's when you know – uh, you've you've got the responsibility, and you're now the uh, I, I I don't know what it is the the centre of your extended family. Yes, I I remember vividly the first time we hosted Christmas, and yeah, wow, it was good. Looking back, probably on the whole, but wow, it was make? pretty intense. What'd you make? Was it turkey? Did you go traditional? Um, Ham. I'm just trying to remember. I think, well, because my wife has very English parents, uh, we did do the fairly traditional English sort of cooked a, a roast. I don't think it was a turkey, but I think there was roast chicken and there was, um, it may have been a lamb roast as well. Yeah. It was, it was all on. And she does a pretty mean Yorkshire pudding and all that sort of stuff. So Very nice. Oh, it was the goods. I haven't taken any responsibility for cooking anything <laughs> at Christmas. I cook okay, but nothing like befits that kind of situation. Given that you've probably quit sugar and everything else, Adam, because <laughs> you know, I know that you're a, a dedicated foodie. This may be, uh, you know, close enough to sin asking this question. But what's your favourite takeaway food choice? Um, I get takeaway a, a fair bit, to be honest. Uh, I mean, not once a week or anything like that, but. Yeah, you know, maybe once a month we'll get something. And you know what I tend to get? I tend to get Indian when I get takeaway yeah. only because I don't cook a lot of it. You know, cooking curries is not difficult. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can cook them. I have cooked many of them. But I tend to think that when you cook something like that, firstly, my, my wife doesn't quite like the smell of the, uh, the spices all through the house for a few hours after cooking the curry, <laughs> uh, which I... You know, I grew, grew up with that. I grew up eating a lot of Malaysian food, and there are lots of, obviously, curries that are in that. Good curries, yeah. Um, I, I tend to 
Yeah, Indian would be the one thing that I cook the least of here, and therefore it tends to be the mo the thing we get the most of um, out. That and hot chips, because I think hot chips are much better when you don't have to make them yourself. Oh, yeah, but a good hot. There's a lot of difference between an okay hot chip and a good hot chip, though, isn't there? Yeah, but if if if, if you're halfway as obsessed with hot chips as I am, you know where in the area you can get good hot chips and where you steer clear. Um, and where they don't respect the chip. So, uh, yeah, uh, good hot chips is, is always a good bit for a takeaway. Have you had um, any restaurants or places where you've just gone to eat as a normal human? Uh, have, have you ha have people come out and, and treated you differently, either because they're intimidated or because you're Adam, that guy from the television? Um. Not really, you know. You might get a, an extra dish here and there, or um, nice. you might uh, the, sh the chef might come out and, and say hello because uh, we work in the, uh, the same field or a similar field, or we've met before. Um, so I guess yeah, if that's differently, then then yeah. But certainly, no one uh, rolls out the red carpet for you as a as an, as an ex reality TV contestant. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think that entitles you entitles you to very much in in the in the restaurant world because uh, they are completely different things. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I I know a lot of chefs these days, and and I go to a lot of restaurants, and I meet a lot of people. So in, in that respect, yeah, maybe, maybe differently to to somebody who wanders in off the street and, and maybe doesn't have the same connection to the place. Is there a restaurant that you would choose to work in, given the opportunity? Um, I'm not a chef. You know, this is the, the, the big misnomer with MasterChef is the fact that it has nothing to do with chefing really whatsoever. Mm. You know, then we're not chefs going onto the show. We're not chefs when we come out of the show, whether we win it or not. Um, it's just a very, very different thing. You know, I'm not in any way qualified to walk into a restaurant and start throwing pans around and, and uh, writing menus and that kind of thing. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's a very different skill and it's frankly not one that I'm um, uh, all that interested in. Um, not that I'm not interested in it, but in, in the sense that I'm now in my 30s and at a point where a lot of uh, actual chefs are trying to get out of kitchens and I'm not entirely keen on, on getting into a commercial kitchen, particularly with children. It's not a very con sure. li a lifestyle conducive to that. You know, I've, I've done stages at places like Tetsuya's and Flower Drum down in Melbourne and uh, a few mates' restaurants around the place. And um, I, I've seen a bit of what that life could be like, and it's it's fun, but it's, it's definitely a, a younger person's game, in my opinion. What, for you, then, is a source of strength? A source of strength, gosh. Um, uh, yeah, this isn't just pithy tweets, man. We're asking real questions. <laughs> um, you want to be good at what you do, surely, whether that's mm. your career or playing sport on the weekends or um, anything, really, your hobbies. You know, there's if you driven I feel that if you're driven by let's say, a fear of failure or um, the love of your children. You know, all of these are very poignant things and, uh, of course, they exist. But that's not what can continue to drive you in every aspect of your life. If you're only driven mm -hmm. by providing for your family, then you're only driven in making money. 
You know, if you're only yes. driven by a fear of failure, you're only driven into things that are, uh, are win-loss scenarios. Um, I think achievement in general is its own reward, I guess, and that's what drives uh, most people to do what they do every day and do what they do every weekend and do what they do when they're off the clock. Um, it's it's all the same to me, frankly, whether it's uh, trying to get work done at university or trying to um, get a promotion in your job or trying to paint a picture on a weekend. Uh, all of that comes from the same place. You just want to do things well. What does your downtime look like? Uh, I remember downtime. <laughs> <laughs> Back before I had kids. <laughs> yeah, brief, brief, brief period in 2007. Um, I, I, mean, <laughs> no, I, I don't have a lot of downtime, to be honest. Um, last night, my downtime consisted of literally falling asleep while reading a book to my son in bed and having the book hit me in the head as as he said, what are you doing, Daddy? <laughs> That's the best. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of di- downtime, to be entirely honest. Um, mm. But, you know, I do what most people do. I, I'll plonk down in front of the TV, flick on Netflix, or, uh, you know, watch whatever I've got IQ'd, and I'll watch 85 seconds of it before I fall asleep. <laughs> and come back to it at some point and go, I don't remember any of this happening. <laughs> yeah. So what can't you tolerate? What can't I tolerate? People that don't indicate when they change lanes. I ride a, oh, I ride a motorcycle. Brother, and preach that. It is the most... I, I just think... <laughs> I'm going to sound like a crazy person here, but I think you can see deep into somebody's soul by whether or not mm-hmm. they indicate changing lanes in mm-hmm. a car. Um, of course, there's the practical aspect of I'm a, on a motorcycle and cars that don't indicate... Are, a, are probably what's going to kill me at some point in my life. Uh, and it happens to me 20 times a day. And I don't, I don't mind cars that don't see me. You're on a motorcycle and you're travelling at 80 kilometres an hour. Cars are not going to see you all the time. Um, but if I can't see what a car is doing, and you get so many heroes. I, I live on the north shore of Sydney. And people that change five lanes at a time with no indicators that... 110 kilometres an hour in an 80 zone. And uh, I just think, you know, you don't even know I'm here because you cannot possibly see me, even if you are Sebastian Vettel, you cannot see me in in the current way that you are driving. So at least give me a chance to see what you're doing. And so that's dangerous and all, but just this idea that I know what I'm doing, nobody else needs to know what I'm doing, it, it it's endemic in in certain areas of the city and you can really see the thought process. And you can see, you know, as I've studied this for hours and hours on a motorcycle riding along, and you can just, you can tell by the type of car, the type of person that's driving, whether or not they think that they're, they're too good to let anyone else know what they're doing by using an indicator. Oh, Adam, I cannot agree with you more. I rode a motorcycle, admittedly not in Sydney, where I'm sure it's far crazier, <laughs> uh, but I rode one in Brisbane and Look, I'm a big dude on a Harley, and I still have people uh, attest to not seeing me. It is crazy. <laughs> um, it, it, may I ask, what do you ride? What kind of bike? I've got a, a Kawasaki W650. Um, nice. A few little customised tweaks on it, like like the kids do these days. The kids. 
any anyone under 35. <laughs> How have you tweaked it? Oh, just a few things, bit bit of stuff on the seat, bit of uh, stuff on the around the handlebars and mirrors, that kind of thing. Not, nothing too dramatic and fancy, but um, uh, just enough to make it personal, I guess. Can I ask, are you doing what Adam in year 11 thought he'd be doing? Oh, no way. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> not, not, not even close. Um, but, uh, I mean, lifestyle-wise, I would say yes. Um, in terms of do I go to the type of office that I envisaged for myself uh, back then every day? Absolutely not. But in terms of where I am at this stage of my life, yeah, I'd say it's, it's pretty close. Okay? Um, uh, in terms of, of family, spending time with friends, going to footy, uh, those kind of things don't really change. And, and frankly, I don't think jobs are all that different anyway. You know, regardless of what your job is or what mine is, at the end of the day, mostly everyone just sits at a computer and answers emails um, and then for a very short period of time goes and does the other thing that their job is, whether it's, uh, um, I don't know, electrical work or doctoring or accounting or making TV shows. What's your favourite place to travel to? Oh, there's a... Travel's, travel's tough. Um, you know, Italy is always really good because it's... It's just fun and it's not as pretentious as uh, some other places. And I, I always have a really good time when I go to Italy. I mean, I have family there, so it makes it a bit more like home, I guess. But um, oh, look, <laughs> if I'm to be entirely honest, I just love coming home. I love being at home. I spend yeah. probably eight months of the year on the road and... It, coming home is, is the best thing of, of my travel time for absolute sureness. Obviously, the people are key to that for you. Yeah, of course, of course. You know, what's home without people? A building with furniture in it. Well, lots of people like to have those big buildings with furniture in it, independent of the people. Yeah, yeah, but uh, um, I guess... I guess when you travel a lot, it's not about familiar surroundings in terms of sitting on the same couch. Like my, my family and I feel just at home sitting in a hotel as we do sitting here as long as you've got the same people around, in my opinion. Yeah. No, that's valid. I travel a bit for work as well. It'd be lovely to have my family with me like that. I hear you. What's the hardest truth you've had to deliver? Jeez. Um, I... I don't know. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a tough question. I'm not really sure how I can answer it. Um, I don't know. Uh, only just getting back to cooking mm-hmm. on it, which is my re- retreat to familiarity. <laughs> I think one of the hardest things that people understand with cooking is that the simpler you make something, the better it is. I read somewhere who was saying it the other day. Well, I, so I read somewhere um, that someone had got some advice from Paul Bacuse you know, 40 years ago. He said, whenever you cook something, just leave out as many ingredients as you possibly can from the list of ingredients you were thinking of using. You can make it taste better with fewer ingredients. And I absolutely believe that. Um, it, we overcomplicate our food in such an enormous way every single time. And it just comes from... Uh, 
a lack of confidence, I guess. You know, we don't think a steak's going to taste great just as it is. And so we, you know, I remember doing when I, when I was 14 years old, the first thing that you do when you cook is you look for what flavour you're going to add into the food. So, you, you know, whether you're grilling a chicken breast or cooking a steak, you grabbed a, a thing of spices and you started to shake it all over uh, the piece of meat and that's where you thought the flavour came from. But these days I never do that. I, I almost never use spices at all in, in my cooking because um, I like the way that the ingredient tastes more than, uh, you know, a, a powdered spice out of a packet. Yep. And I think, you know, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a hard truth, uh, but I'm obfuscating the question, I think, quite admirably. <laughs> I'll let you get away with it. Thank you. Because my mouth is now watering at the thought of an excellently cooked steak. <laughs> what what do you see as is one of the key sins for the way people prepare steaks? Um, not letting them rest, I think, is probably the the cardinal sin, or um, not seasoning it is probably the other one. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's it's so simple that if you do anything other than just Seasoning it with salt and some pepper if, you, if that's what you like. Putting it into a very hot fry pan, a uh, very heavy fry pan, cooking it and then resting it. You know, that's, that's all you need to do. If you're doing anything else other than that, whether it's, gosh, I don't, I don't even know. I haven't cooked a steak any, any other way than that for a very long time. But, um, you know, I, I see people that, that don't rest steaks. I see people that uh, insist on you know, flipping it every nine seconds or whatever it is, which is, you know, that's fine too if you want to do it that way, but it's not going to dramatically increase your, your enjoyment from eating the steak. Um, or cutting it in half to see if it's cooked, that kind of thing is, just, is terrifying. But, um, yeah, I, I think the simpler you keep it and the more confidence you have with it, the better it's going to be. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Uh, it's, a, it's a tough one. Um you know, I've got my my columns that I write, and, and I write features and things as well. I've got another book coming out at the end of the year. I've got uh, some new discussions with SBS on a few exciting things on the horizon there. Excellent. Um, so you know, it's you, you have me at a bit of a disadvantage because I, I tend to like to stop and take stock of where I am very regularly. I think you do need to to do that regularly and, and work out whether what you're doing is right and whether you're going in the direction you want to be going at. And when you're too busy, you can't do that. So I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've come off the back of probably th- three, four months now where I've just been kind of barreling and juggernauting through my to-do list and just knocking off each each one, at, uh, each thing that I can at the time. And, and so I haven't had that kind of stop-take period where I work out if – everything I'm doing is right, if everything's in the right position, if everything's going in the right direction. And um, so I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm flat out. I, I don't have a second to spare, but it's all going well for me. And I, I am, I'm pushing in one direction, but it seems to be the right one so far. But uh, if I do get a little bit of a, a break anytime in the next couple of months, I'll sit back and, and take stock of if, all the things that I'm doing are the right things that I should be doing. It sounds it sounds amazing, given that the, the stuff that you are now investing yourself in, the work that you're doing, and that to continue to have these opportunities must be 
very gratifying. Yeah, it's great. It's 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 great fun. It's a great lifestyle. It's um, uh, very enjoyable, to be honest. And I, I feel very lucky to be able to do it, and that I have the faith of all the people that uh, allow me to do that, whether it be publishers or uh, broadcasters or uh, people that read my books or columns or um, watch my shows on TV. So you know, I'm very grateful to all those people that, that make it happen. But I. Yeah, of course, I've got to repay that faith with uh, uh, doing the best job I possibly can. Well, you have so far, and it's it's been spectacular. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Please know the things that you said are, are, are very special, and you're highly valued. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Uh, now, I'd, I'd normally at this point ask, uh, you know, to, to for you to share any of your social accounts, because clearly you're on Twitter, I just want to slide in very quickly before you do that. A 100,000% endorsement, people. If you are not following Adam, you are missing out. <laughs> I have no idea how you're not writing comedy. <laughs> Where would I find the time? Well, admittedly, something else would have to give. Uh, but the stuff that you deliver, whether they are just passing comments on whatever is happening in the big news story or if you've managed to find the moments to sit down and watch a, a you know an episode of sh- insert show here always quality always excellent thank you very much are there other social accounts that you want to admit to adam oh yeah for sure you know i've, I've got to, if you want to follow me on instagram or uh, snapchat even if you're if you're a millennial <laughs> uh, facebook of course they're all the same um, uh, at adam liao at, at all of those uh, please, uh, I'll, I'll see you there. And with that, I realised I've pronounced your name wrong. Apologies. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Adam Liao is indeed human. Thanks a lot.